Hello, and welcome to Creative Writing Out Loud, your place to hear the latest fiction and poetry from America's creative writers. I'm your host, Alexander Smith. CWO is edited and produced by yours truly, and new episodes are released every Tuesday. Stay updated on our Facebook page and by visiting creativewritingoutloud.com. Stay tuned. On today's episode of Creative Writing Out Loud, you'll be listening to Not This Time by Scott D. Pomfret. Scott D. Pomfret is the author of novels The Second Half, A Gay American Football Story, The Hunger Man, and Only Say the Word, as well as a collection of short stories, You Are the One. His short works have been published in Post Road, New Orleans Review, Fiction International, and 14 Hills, among others. Scott is lucky to be able to write from his tiny Boston apartment and even tinier Provincetown Beach Shack, which he shares with his partner of 15 years, Scott Whittier. For more information, visit www.scottpomfret.com or follow him on Twitter at Boston Cenachi, that is at Boston, S-E-A-N-A-C-H-I-E. Thanks for tuning in. Now let's get started. Not This Time, by Scott D. Pomfret, copyright 2016. Not this time, swear to God. This time, every glorious, evil, caustic, cantankerous curse I'd ever longed to utter would spill from my lips in a venomous and malignant and withering froth. Every repressed urge, every petty resentment, every spark of revolt, every splinter of backbone. They'd be summoned and honed and delivered in a vicious, cool, eviscerating, and expected thunder. Bricks raining down on my boss. Blows, explosions, hand grenades. He'd beg for mercy, but I'd have none to give. My rage would be without logic, before logic, perfect. But before I uttered a word, before I even got my gay ass halfway out of my chair, the boss murmured something complimentary about the way I'd optimize the placement of shredding bins around the office to ensure my fellow peons used them instead of the recycling bin under their desk, which was, as we all knew, not a secure form of document destruction. Typical big boss bullshit, but there was no denying it pulled the rug out from under me. No dungeon, no howls and protest, no Molotov cocktails, just the boss back in his office, his head moving back and forth like a duck on a silver pond above the shoulder height frosted glass, serene, effortless quacking endlessly into his Bluetooth about matters far too lofty to share with us mere mortals. Story of my life. Just when I was ready to lay high holy claim to a little workplace dignity and a delicious torching of any future employment prospects whatsoever, fate insisted on a polished shoe and a modulated tone and a straightened necktie and an ass firmly back in my OSHA-approved ergonomic office chair where it damn well belonged. At 5.30 sharp, 
His every gesture suffused in a soft glow of good-natured contempt, as if I wasn't the worst of the nincompoops he had had the colossal misfortune to have supervised over the years, but not the best either. The boss cheerfully wished me good night. The moment he was gone, all the tongue-bitten bitterness and festering injustice welled up again in my heart. I vowed action. I vowed vengeance. Had he not locked his office door behind him, I'd have forthwith disconnected his power cord. I'd have immediately removed his headset from his charging station. I'd have instantly mislaid the February sales figures. I ran out after him, but the street I had hoped would prove portentous and oddly likely to be terminal and full of meaning, like a one-way street that ended in a brick wall, had instead an insolent, dappled March springiness violently at odds with my vows. Budded trees showered a confetti litter of white-pink petals. Weeds sprouted luxuriously, passing cars honked good-naturedly. A teenage boy rode his bicycle by with the front wheel popped and a permanent wheelie. Junkies stumbled haplessly toward the clinic down the block without taking the slightest notice of me. I kicked a stone that shot unnoticed into the curb. I felt small and gay and oppressed and passed through and ignored and permanently furious. I'd grown up in the proud-to-be-out-and-gay era, but just now I wasn't proud of anything, particularly my apparent second-rate work. But I was still resolutely gay. And being gay wasn't bad. It was just beside the point. If only I could pin my considerable feelings of oppression and loserdom on garden-variety employment discrimination, I would have felt superior, which was at least a fleeting satisfaction. Instead, I was adrift like a cork in the ocean, bobbing. Call me Bob, I thought. It wasn't my name. I craved the old man's approval, and I hated myself for it. Down the block, a lucky strike sign was hanging in the filthy window of Iggy's corner market. It occurred to me that I might look tougher and more dangerous if only I had an unfiltered cigarette dangling from my lip. Beyond the screen cage door was a dusty, tottering, tattered inventory. The clutter made the market seem noisy and overheated, though the only sound was a radio turned so low I couldn't even detect what kind of music was playing. Shielded by scarred plexiglass, the clerk seemed small, but she was oddly imposing, like meeting someone responsible for crimes against humanity. Resuming a conversation that my entrance had broken, the clerk nattered at another customer in heavily accented English, punctuated by another unfamiliar staccato tongue. Now, I'm not naturally the type of person in whom people instantly share their passionate, intimate, and alarming views of the world and our place in it. A cold and intimate politeness was my typical due from strangers. Or, occasionally like a garbage disposal, I was made the recipient of complaints that had nowhere else to go concerning matters over which I had no control or even the least bit of knowledge. But couldn't clerk and customer sense the rage emanating from my skin? Couldn't they see I was an avenging angel? I hadn't been born to have my life and body smashed and looted by old age and death. 
I've been born for a younger end and a more just cause. May I help you? The clerk asked. The words were a challenge, a direct affront. Did I look as if I needed help? Was I an incompetent idiot, incapable of the least tasks without close supervision, as my boss so clearly believed and documented ad nauseum in my mid-year performance evaluation? A handful of other customers pressed into the confined space behind me. They gawked at me, as if I were an exotic, feathered creature extracted from a strange land and brought here for display. Their respect and gravity wasn't meant for me, but rather for my plight, as if they knew that I, like a great caged beast in a zoo, never should have been taken from my homeland. It wasn't my whiteness that drew their attention. Another white man was picking among the Cheetos. It wasn't my gayness. The fire plug in the corner squinting at a suppository could easily have been a bull dyke. No, what set me apart was that the other patrons seemed like members of a secret and closed society with bylaws and secret handshakes and formalized mores that I, as an outsider, could never hope to understand. Or maybe every one of them, an addict or dealer or John or streetwalker or pickpocket or thief or other disreputable type, none of whom was at that moment outwardly plying his or her trade. Though again, I suspect a robust, undetectable commerce among them. Meaningful glances, past stashes, and nods toward cribs that can be rented by the hour. I wanted to be rented by the hour. I wanted to be desired. I wanted my pockets picked, mutely waiting for an order I could follow. A question to which I can say yes. I appeal to each of my fellow patrons in turn. What happened to you? asked a little girl who was twirling her hair into knots with her fingers. Her mother shushed her, but without effort or hope of success. She stared at me as if I were a crooked dealer who had dealt cards from the bottom of the deck. She recounted her dollar bills as if the math might change. She was talking to the baby on her hip like a person who thought life would end if she ever stopped flapping her gums. My boss is a jerk, I ultimately said to the little girl, who nodded sagely, as if she had seen many, many jerks in her six years. I considered expanding on my grievances, to particularize and differentiate them from all the wise little girl had witnessed. But the urge made it seem like I needed to justify myself, or justify my rage, which diminished it, opened it to argument and dispute. I didn't want to be talked down. There were already enough voices inside my head offering to make deals and compromises. I was naturally prey to if-onlys and maybes and bargains and pleas. I needed rage's purity. Yet somehow I didn't know exactly how to hate as a wrong man ought to hate. I could tick off on the fingers of my right hand all the terrible things I'd do to my boss if I ever had the chance and ran into him just now, but the count had no more passion in it than a shopping list. Where was the switch, the toggle, the magic button? Refusing to be bullied or pushed or forced, I refused the clerk's assistance. The clerk responded with a patience 
that was inexhaustible and inhumanly inexpressive. She had the dignity of a woman who had once been famous in another land, in another field of work entirely, but had somehow landed here and was making the most of her final years. My heart raced. My fists clenched. My jaws ached. Fires ignited wherever I set my gaze. Slipping sideways down the first aisle, I took stock of the products at hand as if I was looking to assemble a bomb. How might tinfoil be used to achieve the greatest harm? How might a jar of mayonnaise advance the cause of justice? The shelves sagged. Cartons had been stacked to precarious height. Merchandise was clipped to overhead wires. Crates underfoot bulged. Corner market, I thought. Cornered. Convenient store. Convenient excuse. A place to park rage, to equivocate, to make excuses, or else to lose my mind entirely, where there were no stakes, no one I knew, no job on the line, though possibly a gun under the checkout counter. Likely, in fact. The clerk seemed like an iceberg kind, a lot going on beneath the surface. In the rear of the store, a figure stood in a doorway marked employees only. Cap on head, fist at his side, knees bent, bathed in shadow, ebony skinned. He was rage personified. A man from whom I could learn, with whom I had something in common, kin. After a moment of exaltation, I realized he was only pissing into a mop sink. Instantly, my body betrayed me. I craved the peace and sense of accomplishment of a good piss. The pissing figure glanced at me. I dropped my gaze, guilty as only a gay man could be, for fear of being seen as a pervert when there had been no touch of perversion or desire in my observation. Only envy. Pure envy. Like seeing a pretty boy who was too young for you. When I glanced up again, the figure's heavy-lidded eyes were still fixed on me, and he was patiently returning his junk to his trousers. His passivity was awful and bovine. Lazily, he tossed a broomstick at me like a javelin, but it fell short with a light clatter. The clerk cleared her throat. The figure's gaze turned more languid, as if he had proved himself to be exactly what he was expected in a white man's world. He stretched his arms above his head, and the pop of his joints was a gunshot. He smiled, which defeated the remnants of my fear, but brought on something worse, the despicable taste of hope that the figure would like me, that he would help me. I hate faggots, he muttered, but he didn't appear to mean it any more than I did when I said, I hate you, boss. I hastily turned down the next aisle and came face to face with an elderly black man leaning against a thin counter on which lay a quarter and a deck of used scratch cards. There was no brotherhood in his gaze, nothing in common. It was the bleakest look I had ever seen, and then he put his tongue in his cheek and mimed the most joyless fellatio the world had ever seen. The baby on the mother's hip watched us expressionlessly, and its unconcern seemed monstrous at odds with its innocence. Izzy's was my hell. What kind of name was Izzy, anyhow? Ishmael? Israel? Esmeralda? Was a clerk's name Izzy? 
Was she the owner? Or was she just like me, toiling away for a boss who didn't appreciate her enough, who was not unkind, but not respectful either, who took credit for her best ideas? Frustrated and embarrassed, I backhanded my eyes with my sleeve and pretended to cough. Tears were exactly what all these people would expect from a big pansy, and I wanted to be the sort of pansy who surprised. At the checkout, the clerk was carefully and precisely peeling a tiny clementine. If asked, she would no doubt sell me a scratch card, or a tin of dip, or some minutes for my phone. These were chores she knew. These were the products locally in demand. My demands were entirely different. I didn't want to succumb to the vain hope of an easy reward. Luckies, I said gruffly. The clerk had no luckies. But the sign! She looked up and considered the sign like she noticed it for the first time. A shadow passed over her face, as if she were momentarily reminded of something of her girlhood in the home country, where she had been wealthy and powerful and well-respected and attended balls with the best of their now broken society. I couldn't tell whether the expression signified pain or anger or sadness, it was too distant, like a person on a raft waving, and onlookers unable to determine if the person was waving goodbye or asking for help. And now, gradually, my rage, too, was just a person on a raft, and carried on a current I couldn't feel. It was getting further from me. Camels? she murmured at last. Camels? Impossible! Another lie, another compromise, another surrender, another attempt to thwart me. Brand name alternatives raced through my mind, but I could neither utter thee nor summon thee requisite desire, so I accepted the camels. My spinelessness so thoroughly nauseated me that I dissolved into contemplation of the puniness of my existence until I came to believe, indeed, that I deserved every humiliation the boss had doled out to me to date. Dignity was like a drumstick. I gnawed at it, but was always starving. Give me a pack of AAA batteries, I said aggressively, as if to make up for my capitulation. Without looking, she pulled the pack from the hook. No, I said, the four-pack. Give me the four-pack. I couldn't stop myself from adding, please. A light glimmered in the clerk's eye. It was infinitesimal, like a lit match shaken out in her skull. And for a brief moment, I believed I alone could see the light. And then I saw the others could see it too, even the baby. And I was a little resentful the clerk had dispensed her light out so cheaply, the whore. The clerk gave me the Duracell four-pack, and then also slid a pack of matches across the counter without being asked. I glanced at her inscrutable face. Was the gesture a sign of approval? A subtle license? Did she know what I had in store for my boss? It was foolish to make a book of matches more than what they were, and yet still, I couldn't help thinking of them as indicating a deeper, more serious camaraderie and I ransacked her every aspect for some sign of cheap solidarity. Outside Izzy's, I felt as bewildered as if I had been kicked out of a church. I first looked the way I had come, 
and then the way I was going, and I immediately came face to face with my boss. My boss. Of all the people in the whole world, an unwanted apparition. A celestial call of my bluff. A Halloween haunt. A bad, practical joke. It just seemed so highly unlikely it was really him. Boss? He leaped out of his skin. The shock turned to momentary welcome, and even a hint of pleasure, which evaporated his sins. I couldn't name even a single one of his transgressions, yet I felt sure he knew them, and therefore they didn't have to be named, and if he wasn't exactly sorry, he was at least wishing he had treated me more nicely now. The brief welcome soon turned to doubt, the slight droop of his shoulder, the almost imperceptible wilting at the knee as if he had placed before me another of his inexplicable challenges. And no matter what solution I devised, it was the wrong one, as he would patiently, coldly explain in a tone laced with pity and generosity. Almost at once, a hundred feelings overwhelmed me, pity and scorn and sadness and a willingness to help and, God forgive me, a willingness to blow him if that was what he required. I couldn't stand feeling what I felt, the humiliation of it. But humiliation was at the same time familiar, and the familiarity was itself a comfort, and the comfort gave me courage. Someone like him, who had never been struck in the face, who had never had his head held in a toilet, how could he dare to presume anything? How can he ever call himself alive? Hate wrung out dripping slowly to the pavement, which became slick. My boss must have thought I was wetting myself, but I was too proud to look down and acknowledge the stain. I stared at him until his face receded and was no longer capable of accepting a stare, and then I continued to look over the empty place between his shoulders. What are you doing here? I asked. He pointed at the Lexus. Its hood was raised. He pointed at the phone in his hand and the headset at his ear, and pantomimed a brisk and efficient call for a tow truck. The screen of his phone was blank and unlit. He was only faking the call, too proud or afraid to borrow a spare from a junkie. I was tempted to leave him, because he was one of those entitled pricks who expected rescue, and would accept it as if he was doing me a favor, and he needed to learn to suffer. Good luck, I thought. I'm in a hurry. I'll miss my train. See you tomorrow. The word seems spiteful and small. But what else ought I to do? Mime fellatio? Nod sagely as only a six-year-old can? It was like trying to fold a fitted sheet. I couldn't get the ends to match up. No, I told myself. I won't abandon him. Because... He take my abandonment as further evidence of my incompetence. And although I might not have been employee of the month every month, I earned my keep. I'll surprise him, I thought, even though it was obvious the last thing in the world he wanted at this point was another surprise. He wanted certainty, something in line with his prior conceptions of the world. He wanted a tow truck. He wanted AAA. Smoke? I offered... A knee-jerk no formed on his lips, but popped like a bubble before he could utter the word. He took the smoke and acted like he didn't know which end to put in his mouth. Days like today, 
I said and shrugged and struck a match. Wish I never quit, he said. And I couldn't see him as a smoker. I couldn't see him poisoning himself on purpose. He had always had higher standards. And I wanted them to be higher. I wanted the man I hated to be a better man than me. Welcome back. You've been listening to Not This Time by Scott D. Pomfret. We hope you've enjoyed it. If so, please help spread the word by leaving a five-star review on iTunes or the social media platform of your choice. If you are not already a subscriber to our mailing list, visit creativewritingoutloud.com to join. Stay informed and get access to special subscriber-only opportunities. Are you a writer or poet? Want your work featured on the podcast? Send your submission to info at creativewritingoutloud.com. Music is by Yellowchair. This podcast is copyrighted 2016. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for more creative writing.